Welcome to Act Two by Choosing Him Ministries with Tisha Janes and Andrew Pate, a place where life stories are told, encouragement is shared, and hope is found. Good morning, listeners. Good morning. We're so happy to have you. If y'all only knew all the conversations we've been having with all stuff behind the backgrounds before we hit record, but you guys, we are having great conversations this morning with Ian Dunaway. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. How are you? Good. I'm uh, I'm ending uh, about a week and a half or a week of traveling and speaking, and so it's kind of nice to be home in my own bed. Yeah, for a little while. Absolutely. So we, uh, but doing well. Yeah, good. Yeah, people don't really understand all that goes along with ministry. You know, when they think like, yes, you're in ministry, you do this. Like, they think you just go have lunches all the time, and that's all you ever do. Mm-hmm. So they don't really understand. <laughs> Like it comes in spurts where you're gone straight eight days and stuff. So yeah, and, and you're away from your family. But um, so thank you. Let me just say that. Thank you for oh, yes. being a ministry and doing what you do. And, and that's what we want to talk to you about today is where God has led you um, to this point. And then we're going to talk about like the formal part of your ministry on what God is doing for now and in the future. Yeah. So we're going to kind of hand it off to you and just tell us a little bit about your personal journey, your faith journey. Um, and how God has shown up in your life and kind of detoured maybe some paths you thought and, and bla- ways that he's blessed you. And I can think of one of your beautiful wife. Um, so there you go. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Ian. Wide open. Wide um, open. There you go. Well, well, I have, uh, man, I have loved, so I've been honored to do ministry. Not honored to be here, by the way. Um, so thank, thank you all for thinking of me. Thanks. Um, no, in, in the last, this is... This is year 17, which is funny because I feel like I'm still 17 years old um, in ministry. It's just, it's just a funny difference. But we, man, I, to, the whole story kind of begins when I was a, a kid who gave his life to Christ. And doing that at 12 or 13 years old, I I was that kid in Sunday school who probably every other kid hated. But the Sunday school person was like, oh, great. If I need a right answer, I go to that kid, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I was just, you know, I felt like I was okay and gave my life to Christ really early and then always struggled with, you know, am I saved? Am I not? And it's interesting how the depth that God speaks to somebody, whether they're old or young, whatever it looks like in their lives. Cause I remember at 12 years old at probably the worst student camp ever, just the, fu- it's just funny worst. Like just, we were in a motel six convention center in Dallas. Like, <laughs> who does that? And I'm pretty sure the size of the church I grew up at, I, I'm pretty sure that something went really wrong like three months before camp. And they're like, we got to make this work. And so they just started clicking and hiring and doing whatever they could do. Oh, and I don't even remember. I wish I did. I don't remember who the camp speaker was. And But I remember he <clears throat> just called me at that moment, called all of us out. And it was kind of, you know, we don't actually ask Jesus into our heart and all that. So I stay away from those terms. But I remember as a kid who grew up in that, he said, uh, you know, I want you to put a sh- an elevator on your shoulder. It's really kind of a weird analogy, but drop it down, open the doors. What do you see? And and at that point, I had this moment where God just said, there's nothing of me in you. And, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm as big as I, I'm like five, nine. I'm, I was about five, six as a sixth grader, which was a huge sixth grader. I was like 140 pounds. And so I just, this big blubbering baby and I walked back to my dad. And, I'm like, <laughs> and, you know, he said, well, come on, let's talk. And, and I remember giving my life to Christ and, and probably started owning my, my relationship because men poured deeply in me in ninth mm-hmm. grade. But giving my life to Christ like I did in the family I grew up in, it really gave me a heart for the idea that a lot of church kids are very poorly discipled. They're very well entertained. They're very, they attend a lot. Um, but so often we don't get discipled or we just need somebody to speak through all of the Christianese. 
and speak the truth. And that's always been my goal and my heart. I also love the fact that there are so many things about God's word we just assume. And most of the time, they're not right. And that doesn't mean we don't know the gospel or we're not Christians, but it means that there's a whole level of depth in God's word that we miss so often. So, okay, so Ian, you're talking about the different ways of mentoring young boys specifically and and how what a great need that is in discipleship. Um, And we'll we'll continue that because I remember, you know, back when you were here in town, Russ and I worked um, as volunteers in their youth ministry. And I remember discipleship was very important and we got to be a part of that and loved that. And um, it was just some crucial years. Um, that I know I watched, we had our, the boys group. Well, it was some girls, but mostly boys that we got to watch being poured into some really crucial years. So, um, yes. Speak. You guys are still on my top 10 list of leaders. So. Oh, well, good. Like, nobody owns a spot as much as that's like the top 10 tier. So I don't have to actually rank them. But you guys are, you're <laughs> one of my favorite groups and favorite leaders um, well, to be with and work. It was an honor to work with you. Um, it really was. And we got to so, you know, you don't grow up knowing how to disciple people. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love about disciple, it doesn't have to be a formal sit down. Here's your paper and your three ring binder. It's let's do life together. Let's figure out this. And, I, and we got to do that. I think that we do discipling a disservice when we, we do make it about a, a paper and a pen mm-hmm. and, and whatever your lesson plan is. Those are important things. But I think that that lead, I think that the whole church and what the church is struggling with right now a lot is a being educated beyond our level of obedience, right? Like we, we know a lot of things. We understand a lot of truth. We're very well informed, but there's always a struggle to be transformed. So you need the information, but when that's all you lean on, I think we fall into what Paul says where he explains, you know what, without love, what does it matter? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And so part of that love is discipleship is just about creating a learner. We think that it's about getting to a destination or jumping into a program, but the word disciple literally means a learner. So when Jesus says make disciples, he's asking you to be an example and then to connect. And that's why it's so much, I, I love to preach and I love what happens at church, but that's two to four hours a week. Right. right. What are you doing throughout the rest of your life? And so some of my favorite times, even with your son, Tisha, was um, the chance to meet at, I mean, how crazy you gotta, you gotta assume the spirit's the one working here because you get a bunch of high school guys at 6am to Chick-fil-A just don't even happen. Right. That's time that I would sleep. <laughs> and so to, to be able to disciple him over a few years and to invest and to ask questions, those are times I think where a lot of discipleship is born. And then just inviting him. One of the most powerful things you can do, um, as a believer, it doesn't matter the age of the person. Cause I think really what applies to a 12 year old is going to apply to a 60 year old, right? The, mm-hmm. the truth is the spirit makes that truth apply. You just have to teach it. But like, I know that so many students, I used to think this is odd. And, and then I realized the importance of it, but I'd have leaders that ask students to go get groceries with them or to go do just the mundane things of life. And in that they begin to build relationships partially because there's kind of a reverse effect where your worth, um, you're worth somebody bringing you into the least like exciting part of their life and you're just important to them. You feel like family. And so, yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. And, and men did that to me and I loved it. I, I also had incredible parents that, uh, you know, I tease. It was something I heard from a pastor. You and I both had Tisha, but it, you know, it's easy to get, <clears throat> we just live in a kind of a culture currently of just bitterness and frustration and hurt. And they're all, we never move past anything. And I heard one of the best things I'd ever heard. Cause I was kind of like that. With my parents, I only focused on the negative, the problems, and I had heard him say, and it shifted how I viewed things, but he said, you know, you can spend all of your time being angry 
about what your parents did wrong, and they did. Probably did those things. Or you can forgive or forget those things, and then you can build on what they did well. And so often I, I, I find the battle right now is with trying to teach parents that what they're doing is setting an example and a trajectory and a priority for their kids. And, uh, you know, I took that for granted until I was in my 20s that my parents made me go to church. That's a good thing. Like I, I was not, it was not okay. I tell parents like, well, I just want my kids to really just choose it for themselves. And I'm like, that's great. That sounds super wise. It's not though. When you look at scripture, scripture says, raise a child in the way they should go do what they, you know, teach them like Deuteronomy six is the best example of this as you go in life. And so the point is, if you miss church six months out of the year for baseball, what is your child going to think is the priority when something comes up? That doesn't mean you have to be there every single week. That doesn't, it's not legalistic. It's just trends in your life. What are you consistently doing? And so, and I know a lot of parents that make it work, but I think the hard thing is there's so little discipleship over the last few generations that there's just a struggle to hear accountability spoken in and out. I'm actually going to preach a camp in a week and a half. Um, preached one just last weekend that we're walking through the book of Philemon. And the idea is everybody's like the apostle Paul who speaks truth and rebukes and calls people out, but everybody doesn't want to be like Philemon who hears the truth and hears rebuke and listens to it. And then also everybody has to remember their Onesimus, the slave at one point, we, we play all, all three of these roles and we need more Philemon's in the church. And I don't think that that's a reason to be discouraged and think the church is terrible. It's just the truth is if we don't talk about the problem and then we don't work to address it, we just kind of live with a problem that grows. Yeah. Yeah. I love when we talk about discipleship where it says, as you go, you're to teach. Um, and I, we've probably talked this on a podcast before, but, um, I was speaking at an older women's um, luncheon this past month. And one of the things that God just really impressed on my heart was that, you know, this older generation um, grew up in the church. They have the knowledge of the real truth. Generations that we're raising now, um, truth is subjective to them. They don't know the hard truth with a capital T. They know, because even our news stories is whoever gets there first mm-hmm. and tells the story first, that becomes the truth, regardless of whether, and yes, and whoever yells it louder, that becomes the truth of what their kids believe. And I, I was talking to these older ladies going, you know, you have the truth. You weren't um, trained or biased by, you know, whoever's yelling the loudest and, and switching the truth. But if we don't share the truth to the next generation and we don't tell them, they're only going to believe what the world and the cultures are yelling the loudest. Yeah. And that is on us. Like, if, I mean, you think three generations from now, if our, we're not sharing the truth as we go, we're not teaching them to do life as a Christ follower, who's going to, yeah. and where will Christianity be? Yeah. Well, it's, isn't it funny how, you know, uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, sorry, I'm about to, it's been eight day brain, trying <laughs> to get through, but isn't it, isn't it crazy how Ecclesiastes, you know, says that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Even <laughs> your, your cell phones, they may be a new technology, but the desire to communicate quickly and efficiently, it's not new, right? And so when you start thinking philosophically about it, isn't it crazy how history has always been written by the victors to some extent and that now like what you're saying is we're kind of seceding it and saying well whoever gets there first whoever talks the loudest must be the victor so they're going to write history or rewrite it and that that's beautiful truth with the church stands that even the apologetic of scripture has always been that in a time where kings were gods and they never did anything wrong
wrong because they happened to be kings or get there. That was not Israel, right? David was terrible. Saul was terrible. Now, mm-hmm. David was good most of his life, but when he made mistakes, he was terrible. And God doesn't ever pull punches because Scripture's about God, right, not about men. And it's interesting that you're right, this, that we as people need to stand up. What I get nervous about and what I think has been – I'm not nervous. I just – I feel like we're fighting this battle, but so much of <clears throat> what we need to do as a church is be willing to uh, discuss the right answers, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people, even in older generations, and I mean, gosh, what a what a short span of time, right, that we live in, like a hundred years maybe mm-hmm. that we think about. But even in that time, um, so many people were told this is right, this is wrong, um, and then that's as far as they went. So then, when you start having generations come up and ask questions. The thing that I think is right, there's always a problem with the younger generation than always the one that raised them. And I think what some of that issue is always that I grew up with a lot too was, well, you don't ask questions, you just do. And I started, and that's been something I've pushed with students a long time. I said, listen, God is big enough for your questions. Mm-hmm. I may not be always, but let's work mm-hmm. on them together and let's stop. God doesn't arbitrarily te- make rules or give truth or call us to do things in a way that is, you know, it's just kind of haphazard. So often we're afraid to ask, or we are afraid that if we have a question that we don't have enough faith. Yes. And, and I love that. We always tell people, no matter my grief, no matter my struggle, no matter my unbelief or my doubt, it doesn't change who God is. And he's big enough to handle my anger. He is big enough to handle my unbelief or my struggles or my misunderstandings that it just, it, it's not going to dethrone him no matter how many questions I ask. Right. Well, look, and, at how, look at how bipolar David is throughout all of the Psalms. Like, I mean, just the stuff he says right. is, God, my enemies, they win. The, the wicked prosper. The good are trampled. What is wrong? I mean, essentially, what is wrong with you? And then he always ends it with, but I know you're good. And it's okay to be angry at God. It's just not okay to stay there. You've got to work it out. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is there's so much inbred intellectual um, belief inside of the church that we struggle to have that kind of robust questioning, that robust um, theology where we're willing to do that, right? We just kind of heard, that, that was a term, I can't remember the college I heard it from, but they used to talk about how you don't want to go to the same university and grad school and all that because you don't want to have intellectual inbreeding. And I think that so much of that happens where we just hear that it's right, that it's right, that it's right. Jesus has his church. The Spirit is working in those who know him. Um, but I, but I do long to see a robust, um, gosh, culture of Christianity where we can talk and discuss and disagree while not arguing and going at each other's throat all the time. And so that is, I think that that would be a great, that's part of what we work for at our church mm-hmm. and what we work through. So, um, no, that's great, great decision. In fact, adding into that, so as moving through that story, it kind of fits. Like if I yeah. had not had guys that did that in my life. Right. I don't think I would be, and I don't even know, I always hesitate like every believer when Paul says, do as I do. I don't know if I really believe that. To say, I don't believe that enough to say to people. Uh, it's intimidating, but I I wouldn't be where I'm at now or even pursuing what God's called me to pursue had I not had people mm-hmm. who stood in that, that gap for me and who helped lead me towards that. And none of them were perfect, and I can kind of see how each one of them was like a step in my life uh, that... They only took me so far, but they weren't made, meant to go that. I mean, you should have mm-hmm. many relationships, many discipleship investments. And so I went into college after high school, wanted to be a history professor. It has not only been one of the best things I could have studied because it helps me be a better contextual teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is something we fail at often. 
um, in the church, but we're getting better at, I think, I think I do. I'm not, I'm not reformed, not really on the opposite side of reform. I'm usually in the middle, uh, because I think that's a wise place to be, but a lot of the reform scholarship has been helpful. Okay. So for our listeners who've never heard that terminology before, what does that mean? You might've heard the term, uh, well, I'm going to make them all mad by saying this. So, you know, sorry, I'm going to step on your toes. You wouldn't, um, you wouldn't be on. Ian if you didn't. So go ahead. <laughs> That's a good point. Listen, <laughs> hell is hot. Time is short. And, and so is life. So we just need to be honest. But no, I think that it, it, let's just boil it down to this. It really depends on, in your theology, what you believe about God's foreknowledge and his sovereignty and how those two things play out. And that is a super simplified version of a greater thing. But usually if someone says they're a Calvinist, well, always, they say they're Calvinist, they're reformed. Um, but there's some people, they try and put them in a camp called Arminianism on the other side. And Arminianism isn't altogether biblically accurate. It's kind of a pejorative term or negative term um, because nobody really, it's kind of a heresy when you play it out. And and so is Calvinism to its extreme. So anyway, I to that point, Calvinists are very good or Reformed people are very good at studying depth. They all want to go back to the first two centuries of the church usually. And that that is not that's not exclusive to them, by the way. But they are very good at doing that. Um, they tend, though, to say how big God is as long as he fits in these five points okay. or these however many points. On the other side of it, I think there's great application and truth with guys like, well, he's on the other side of my wall, but guys like N.T. Wright or A.W. Tozer um, who have done a very good job over the years of being great scholars and great appliers of that word. And so um, I don't even know how we derailed on it. I know we did, but no, these are good points. And as for our listeners, people are always asking me, who do you study? You know, who are some people that are really good theologians that you, you trust and, and N.T. Wright and, um, is it A.W. Tozer? A.W. Tozer. Thank you. A.W. Tozer. Those are really good ones for our listeners that if you want to research their, um, their works, uh, they're solid, they're truth, you you can bank on this. So we'll move on from yeah, there. So but I get that question a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you should. And you should read it. I mean, your library, if your library agrees with you, it's not a very good library. So you should always be reading back and forth <laughs> and growing and learning, right? And so, like, behind me, Carl Barth, he's very reformed, um, but he saved the church. God used him to save the church in the late 1800s um, from going with the Jesus Seminar that said Jesus wasn't really divine, right? And so... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, super reformed, but if I can, I can't ever point right. And so, and you move on, but N.T. Wright, not. He's part of the high church. And so I think that you should have a wide yeah. view of theology. Um, okay, so moving on yeah. from there, Absolutely. can we talk about... So you know, I never... Oh, go ahead. No, you're talking about your, your ministry and how God kind of led you into that. So part of leading into ministry, um, when I was when I was in... I was towards the end of college, and I, I the best way and quickest way to explain it is... I just hit this divine uncertainty and it's like God was saying, Hey, you know, I thought I was going to be a history professor and that's what I was going to do. And mm-hmm. I loved it. And then God was like, I don't, I don't think you're going to do that. But he also in my heart knew that I hated the idea of going into ministry. And here's why I lived behind the curtain with my family for a long time. I had a, a family member who was not in ministry, but in the church world working and it had been severely burned. Mm-hmm. And I just went, I love Jesus. I love investing in young men because they've been, I was invested in like that. I'm not going to play that game. That was just my thought. I don't want anything to do with it. And, and so I don't ever want to be on staff for it. And so there's this idea maybe of the purity of doing it for that reason. But it was funny because I go to grad school 
Um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. So I had some really wise voices speaking to me that said, you know, sometimes God doesn't direct your path until you start walking in a direction you think he's got you and then let him move you. And frankly, he did. So mm -hmm. I went to grad school at Trinity International in Chicago and ended up transferring and moving to another seminary and some stuff like that. But in my in that situation, God took a book that I would not have read anywhere else and really used it to, and, and I always, to younger people, or even honestly to current people, right, sometimes it says a lot about what we view God to be, is like every time we get happy, we immediately get paranoid, because we know, we think God's about to do something. Right, what's about, what's about coming around like the corner here? I never want us to be happy. What a terrible Christianity that I have lived in my whole life and struggled with. Like, that's how I struggle to view it. Uh -huh. But God's always going to drop the hammer, and... Uh, and so, I, but God gives you a heart to do what he calls you to do. And that was one of the biggest things I learned in this process, because all of a sudden God said, hey, you're going to be a student pastor. And I was like, uh, wait, no, that sounds good now. Okay. All of a sudden my heart shifted and I was happy about it. Okay. And uh, it was odd. Like it was just, and it was not, that's not like a, wasn't a one week process. I mean, it took time for two years. God taught me some real world lessons um, working in a lumber yard for a few years. Like I thought I deserved uh, a good salary and everything because I had a college degree and the world should bow before me. And God said, that's not really how it works. And I'm like, <laughs> awesome. And so I worked for a minimum wage for about two years. Um, after, and I graduated college when I was 20. So I had a couple years in there to play that it wasn't crazy. Um, wasn't like I was 30 or 40 and still right. living at home and playing video games. So I just, that, but I wanted to move out. I wanted to get on with my life. And God kind of stuck me where he wanted me. He used a book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God to really change a lot of how I viewed my own actions mm -hmm. and my own moral superiority. Like he said, you know, you might think you're the prodigal and in the meta sense you are, but you're really like the older brother. Yep. Yep. You're disrespectful and hateful and you hold uh, yourself above everyone else. And, and you, frankly, you're not that good. And I was like, no, fine. You know, and it, it was frustrating, <laughs> but it was good. And well, humbling, of dose of humility. <laughs> so I was just like, I don't know what to say. And it was one of the few times in my life that I feel like God and I had a, like a conversation I could hear in my head. Um, mm -hmm. those, those are not as common as if they're super common. Sometimes I wonder if that's really how it works. But in the last 33 years of my life, I've had maybe two of those moments. And, mm -hmm. and that was kind of where God called me into ministry. So from that point, I went to Virginia, got to serve the church, had a wonderful experience because being the intern or being the temporary guy is a great experience usually um, because you don't have a lot of the, the accountability and responsibility of a long-term person, but you get all of the praise and excitement. And so that was a great way to kick it off, but I had good guys that poured into me and had a good view of ministry. And then I, I went back home with no job, couldn't find anything. They tried to hire me and then God moved me to uh, Atlanta where I, to Noonan, where mm -hmm. I knew you Tisha and kind of worked my way from being an intern to they hired me to be the adult guy, and the whole time they were like, you're not a good student guy. You won't be a good student. You're too academic. You, you know, too. And I was like, well, I don't, maybe maybe that's true, but that's what I feel called to do. And eventually ended up being the high school pastor. And just, you know, to your point earlier, you said it was much more about discipleship than just people. And that was by design. We all I make the joke, and I tease, and other guys have made this joke with me, that if, if you do an event called Free Beer, you could have a 1,000 kids, Right. And you could get their butts and seats, but that's not discipleship. And that's not going to, that's not going to yield long-term results. So mm -hmm. the thing I was most proud of was not being one of the biggest student ministries in the country or some of the best baptism rates or whatever. I didn't even count those. We tended to count them on that staff and I don't even remember what they were, 
What I do remember is that 70 to 80% of the students that went to my camp left in a group being discipled by a leader and by uh, a host home. Mm-hmm. And that, that was where the power was, not just making converts. And that's part of that part of what we struggle with is that we make people that convert four or five or six times and get baptized 12 times. And, and most of the reason is not because of anything else other than we just didn't disciple them. And so we were very focused on that. Um, but even in all of that, so this is a fast forward through the journey, but how I get from that to where I'm at now is, um, I spent probably the next seven or eight years um, serving at different churches, that, that particular one. And I served, I got to serve as the curriculum editor and writer for a really big line of curriculum at Lifeway mm-hmm. um, for Lifeway students. And that was great. It was fun to write, but a 120 page book every, every three months was a lot. And it wasn't just that I was having to edit stuff and there's all these constraints. And you think that you're going to be like smoking pipes and talking theology and sitting around like you've arrived but you're just a content monkey. <laughs> They're just cranking the organ grind. They're like, dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> typing and typing. But I love getting to go and, and travel and do workshops and to connect with pastors. That was my heart and, and love to do that. Um, and then I served at a couple of other churches. And, and here's what I saw in all that time. Um, every one of the churches that I had served at, God allowed us to do really healthy ministry, I believe in incredibly unhealthy environments. Um, and so I started to realize after about eight, nine years of this, that healthy churches are starting to become the exception rather than the rule in a lot of places. Um, and that, and every one of them was different. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned in the very beginning was that it doesn't matter what people call you, it matters who called you. And so we have watched And a lot of the, you know, the world is small, but it's also big. But some of this incredibly awful uh, Southern Baptist Convention, SBC scandal that has come out has proven how unhealthy. Now, that's not 14 million people that are in this. I mean, that's not the like 8,000, no, 14,000 churches. They're not all doing that, right? But we allow a subset of about 2% of churches, which is mega churches, 2,000 or more, to dictate and push where everybody's going. And I think that that's kind of what's starting to fall apart. And I think that's a good thing mm-hmm. that that's, that's not the trendsetter anymore. Um, but I, as I went through these churches, I, I just started to see, and we could spend hours on this, so I won't go into detail and in depth, but in that just started to watch different aspects of how toxic teen culture can be and how scary the word normal can be because what feels normal, it's kind of that, that really cliche idea of the frog. Um, you throw the frog in the water, you turn up the heat and as it gradually raises, he doesn't know until he's cooked. And so I felt like I'd get dumped into these places that they just operated the way they operated. And I'd watch the burden that was on pastors. that was not biblical. I'd watch the reactions and, you know, you ask the question, it's like the chicken or the egg. Is it a pastoral problem? Is it a church problem? Is it a staff problem? And I would say yes to all of that. Um, I think that there is, and, and one of the reasons, so I, I wanted to be at churches, like I was at Southcrest for about four years and I loved that. Um, and I got to be at churches for about two years. I'm about going on three where I'm at now and want to be here for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so, but what I started finding is the longer I went to churches, the less I could survive because I wasn't willing to play the game. And 
it's very much more of a corporate mentality so often than it is a ministry mentality. Right. And, but God know, used I, I a lot of so hard, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, God ahead, used a really some hard times with you um, behind the scenes, which we all know. I mean, there's behind the scenes, the curtain of business world. Sure. But he used that to really open your eyes to say, hey, there's some needs that need to Absolutely. be filled, some needs that need to be spoken into. And that's where you kind of stepped in with your family and y'all created this amazing ministry to speak to those that have been hurt, to speak to where there's some unhealthy environments, which is not only a revelation in today's society, but is exactly what Jesus did. Our whole world is a very unhealthy world, is a very dysfunctional world. And you've got Jesus, who is the ultimate perfection and perfection and healer and health and comes into this world that is so dysfunctional and said, here, let, let me speak to that. And let me change your ways and let me build a relationship with you. And so I think from that is kind of how G6, um, God prepped you. He, he's yeah. used a really hard journey for you to show him, to show you him and then what he's going to use you through because of that. I think so. It's, it's been, we finally just hit a point at that last church where I took the hand. I said, I don't know if I need to go work at Home Depot or what, but I'm not going to play Russian roulette with churches anymore. And so she, I said, you know, I believe, obviously, I believe God called me the place that he called me. And that's why I went. But that, I just felt like we're just getting hammered constantly. And, and it's really hard. It's hard to pour everything you have into something, right? For And I think a lot of pastors are there. I talk to them every week. They pour so much in to a system and to a group of people. And then it just gets ripped away. And so I used to have people explain it, that it's pastors just have 18 months worth of tricks and then they leave. And I think that part of that's true, but I think that culture shapes it. And what we want is a long-term culture making long-term investments in their people, not focused on numerical growth, but focused on depth, which leads to that over time. And so I couldn't understand this. And then I get a call from my, well, my brother-in-law, who we've never been able to do ministry together, and we've always wanted to over 15, 20 years. Of his, his ministry has been a little bit longer than mine. Uh, about seven years longer. And so he just, but he ended up, it's, this is his story, not mine, but he was fired from a church to protect somebody who was incredibly immoral, who was later fired for being immoral. And at that point he had served like I had in a lot of different contexts and unique roles. And he said, we need to, he said, it's time to start a ministry that looks out for the health of pastors. And so he calls me and he says, Hey, you're going to have to be fundraised. Um, but would this be something you'd want to do? And I said, well, the fundraising is frankly not what I want to do. I said, but everything else you're saying is. <laughs> and so we've, it's been a long, it was right before COVID. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, goodness, what a time to move. Right. Um, but what Han, Han and I prayed through it, so that it's called, the ministry is called G6 Allies. And uh, G, Galatians 6.2 is what it's based off of, right? That to fulfill the law of Christ, we should bear one another's burdens. Um, and as that passage goes on, that bearing burdens is not, taking things from people but shouldering it with them and that's part of discipleship is that we're all going to be accountable for our own burdens and our own issues and our own struggles but we need one another to help lift that and move and so michael started this ministry um and really pushed through michael schaefer and he's great at what he does has a great vision for it part of where i offer strengths is that when he called me he said listen we're also a church plant because a lot of the people at our church they didn't they left didn't drum up a bunch of drama or cause problems or issues, but they had several families knock on their door and say, I think we need to start a church. And, and they're like, I don't think we do. <laughs> they're like, no, I think we need to they're like, oh, okay. And so they thought through it and 
and that's my heart is always going to be the local church. Um, and so that was part of how God used that to get me here. But I kind of felt my student ministry tenure is growing short. I expected I'd be in student ministry till it was creepy. And I was just like 50 or 60 and people were like, why is this guy hanging around all these kids? He's not cool. But I didn't. And so, but God kind of moved me. I, I started to notice that what I was teaching was growing in age with the people I started with. And so I, I saw that at a church in South Alabama in Tuscaloosa mm-hmm. where we saw our college ministry just explode. And that was kind of one of my favorite times in ministry because these college students just wanted to learn and talk mm-hmm. and connect. So anyway, uh, but we get here. And so they, they launched the church. The church exemplifies that vision of investing in pastors. So part of that church complements our network across the board. And, uh, and so G6 Allies exists because uh, pastors struggle to live holistically healthy lives. And so we create uh, easy, quality, uh, quality, easy to use tools in order to help them live holistically healthy. And that's our short elevator pitch. The truth is what our goal is uh, eventually is to invest in pastors. And we do a lot of things for free, but to be able to invest money back into pastors, just do they need, I mean, and the statistics are, when I talk about a system that leads to this, the statistics are what kind of convince you. Uh, 71% of pastors know a pastor who's burned out and, and quit. I know five or six or seven or eight offhand. I probably know more. Um, and usually you get calls and you, or you call somebody and you're like, oh, you're not ministering anymore? Oh, gosh. You know, 45% of pastors are at marital risk, like they're at relational risk with their spouse because, uh, because people expect a lot of them, to, but the Bible doesn't. And so that it's kind of a both and, right? You hate that because the victim also has some responsibility if they can to fight against it. But at the same time, there's just a lot of expectations that are not okay. That's why 35% of pastors' kids leave the church by the time they're, they're 15. And so like you watch all this stuff and you get really discouraged and it starts getting really dark and you're like, you know, right now we're at a place where we're not planting enough churches in the United States to sustain church. And you're just like, what do we do? And my, when Hannah and I talked, our question was, okay, are we going to keep being involved in a problem where if the head pastor doesn't change it from the top down, it isn't going to change? Or are we going to step into a place where we can be the solution? Mm. We're going to work hard no matter what. So we might as well do it on something that's yielding results. And and so that's why we shifted into G6 Allies. So what I do, I'm called the Director of Ministry Development, which seems a bit ambiguous. But what I do is build partnerships. I develop tools. So my favorite thing that we have been able to do is to develop a tool, a T-shirt that was kind of, there we go. I don't know if this is pointing to you or not on your screen, but it is on mine. So I, <laughs> I raised the wrong hand. I'm over here. <laughs> But I rem- I don't know if you remember this or not, and I've always been thankful that from different ministries, people have called me years later and said, thank you for all the emphasis you put on leadership development, because uh, that's always been my passion. How do we develop leaders? How do we invest in mm-hmm. them? The problem was, most of the time, there's very little time to prepare because you've got so much going on. Um, and then I, you were probably in some of these meetings, which I'm sorry that you had to be, but when I gave you all a book, and people like you had like annotated and put flags and highlighted and written notes and had like a whole journal that was longer than the book on the side that you'd written on. And then there were people that were like, Oh, I thought we were just going to think about reading this week. I didn't know we were going to actually read, you know, and we would, and, cause reading is the best way to learn still. It's still statistically the best way. And you can add, you know, we want to add tactile, visual, audible type learning to it. But like that was, that's as, as good as most of us get me included. It was like, <clears throat> I want to give you a book. And I just hope it sticks. 
And but I wanted to develop my people because that's where I think we have shifted into an entertainment mode, largely in our churches. And that's why the Prado principle exists in a church that it should not, right? That a 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Mm-hmm. And so how do we develop and build teams, not like starting with our pastor, starting with staffs, because it may be a really small church and there's just one pastor, but there's elders. And however they lay that out, how do we start there and then move to our people and our teams? And so that has part of my job is to try and identify problems and then build tools. The, the big thing about G6 Allies is that we don't believe that we're heroes. We're tool makers to do. And out of that came this thing called Growbox. And, uh, and now Growbox Teams, that's our main thing. And so what that, what that looks like is, but we're so inundated, people have genuinely, I think, lost, including I struggle with it. So this is all out of my weakness too. But uh, we struggle to learn how to read and break down and apply really good stuff. And fa- frankly, the amount of the mountain that you have to dig through of books to get like one nugget of gold is asinine, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's like you go to the discipleship section, and it's like, there's 300 books here. And I start sweating and I get like it, the hand sweats. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this <laughs> because the worst feeling for me is to read a bad book. <laughs> Why would I read about, I mean, I'm not saying you, you're not going to learn from it, but that's so terrible. Yes. And if you're a pastor or you're a lay leader or you're somebody that is taking of your time to pour into other people and you give them a bad resource, that has longer term consequences than you think because eventually people are like, eh, it's kind of hit or miss when we do development and training. And so we want to take that burden off of pastors. And so our we do like G6 University, which is an online platform of like almost like master classes and workshops that we use our partners. We would love for you guys to do one, mm-hmm. um, but we have partners and pastors that come in and do uh, courses. We have an elders and deacon one, all that kind of stuff that is a way of giving you an option for a very cheap price of growing. But our big flagship is this Growbox Teams. And so what we decided to do, one of, the, one of our team members um, has read and his team has read over 8,000 books in their life. Which is stupid. Like that's just at that point you got a problem if you've read that many books. But because God gives us all gifts and passions, so my job was to find the strengths on our team and build something worth. So how do we create a tailored growth plan that offers per, uh, offers the books you need and the development you need for your people that makes them feel like a team and develop them um, and makes you the hero with Excalibur or you know duct tape or the hammer or whatever. How do we create that? And so what we developed, it's called Growbox Teams. I've said it three times, but here's the point. The only type of unhealthy church that can't be fixed or even healthy church that's headed to be unhealthy is a church that doesn't know or has decided they don't need to grow. That's it. Like we work with healthy churches and unhealthy churches and everywhere in between because I had a, I had a church of volunteers and staff where we created this idea. So I'll call, get on the phone with a pastor or with a leader, ministry leader, whatever it may be. And we even work, we've worked with the New York Mets. We work with uh, different organizations who, who, without even realizing it, they love our product and it's great quality. And they're funding pastoral care and they don't even know it. And so hmm. and we have several banks that we work with and things like that. But the idea behind it is I'll call and talk with the pastor and I just want to get to know their growth areas, not their weaknesses, not their problems. I think that they're growth areas and they're just because we all have them. And so mm-hmm. I'll get to know, I'll say, hey, what have you done in the past? Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes there's some stuff. I'll say, what are you doing now? Sometimes it's nothing, right? Sometimes there's something there. But then the important thing is, what are you doing? What do you want to do in the future? Where do you want to grow? 
And most pastors struggle to get it down to three areas they want to grow. But when you talk through it with them, it's it pretty easily in the conversation breaks down. And I say, okay, three areas, let's break it down. We talk about it with them. And then we design, we curate nine resources for them. Uh, and out of those nine resources, those are top shelf. Those are top quality. They may, depending on the pastor or the individual, they may or may not be faith-based. They may just be the best resources available. And the church could learn a lot from leadership books, too, that are not Christian. Right, um, right. And so we build some really good stuff. They pick that, and then we create gifts, and we personalize it, not just tailor it to the church, but we give it to their uh, their students. We have a video out by one of my good friends who started this with us for 30 volunteers, and it was uh, we did Growbox for them, and we did T-shirts. Most pastors love T-shirts, so we do T-shirts that are kind of witty and fun and unique. And he said, he said, when I gave out all my grow boxes, he said they opened it up and there's a grow map inside of it that breaks down uh, the books into milestones. And so here's how it's different. They take the book, they have the milestone map, and as they read it, life happens and sometimes they're not all going to get to read it. And even if you have somebody who doesn't want to read anything, we take over the administration side of it and we actually create milestone videos for those books. And so every milestone that they have, it's not just a summary so it's a summary it's insight into what's going on it's a process that we developed through some really great books and through uh, some academic resources so we have a it gives insights and then it breaks down discussion questions so here's what you've done does that pastor have to go through every question no but what he's doing is whether he has time or not he's building his team around principles that they're all walking through whether they read it or not then when we do the gifts, it seems silly to most people that are very utilitarian like me, <laughs> but I've said I've had enough situation enough uh, experience with teams that I got it. And so one of my guys just said my leader opened the box, started crying, said, there's a plan for six months. You, you cared enough to do that. And mm -hmm. then she opens it up and they pull out shirts that are their size. They pull out their favorite snacks. They pull out different gifts that they mm -hmm. can pick from on this tier system. And he said, now I'm seeing shirts all around town that just exist for my team. He said, I'm starting to see people posting things that they're learning and growing in. And we're watching this with so many churches. And so part of the way we have felt like is the greatest way to shoulder burdens mm -hmm. is to help come alongside pastors and their staff development. You would be surprised at how many pastors say, I love ministry. I love my church. But man, I'm struggling to get this vision across. Yeah. And that's where we just say, let's help you. Well, it's such a beautiful model of discipleship. And, you know, as our listeners are mostly, you know, women, um, but if you are a pastor, um, and you need a toolbox like G6 Allies is a great resource to help you and your staff and, and the people that are surrounded by you. Um, a couple of things that really stuck out to me as, you know, as our listeners hear this, some, like some takeaways um, for whatever your next act is. This, this is definitely yours and Hannah's second act or third or, or fourth or fifth, whatever. Um, it's, it's how God has taken your past, um, redeemed your present and has a plan for your future. And, um, and he has definitely done that with y'all with, with this ministry. Um, a couple of nuggets that I heard you say earlier that I wrote down is, you know, sometimes God doesn't direct our paths until we take that first step. And I'm reminded of, um, of Moses in the Red Sea, even where it doesn't part until his foot goes into the water, you know, or to the staff goes down. Like he, God required an act of obedience when from he Noah. when yeah Moses. for Moses sorry when um before his miracles were happening like they, he wants us to be involved on in that he doesn't want us to be just a distant God yes. um 
And also that he calls us to bear one another's burdens. And that is such a beautiful thing. Um, We're talking about relationships. We're talking about hurt. We're talking about just the mess and the muck of life. Um, When we get to bear one another's burdens, um, that is ministry. That is discipleship. That is walking alongside your person as it says, you know, life has been hard. And later on, we've walked so closely in life together that that glance across the room I understand what you're trying to say without you having to say it. Yes. And that is just what is so beautiful. And I think the last thing that I heard from you is when people are unhealthy and they don't want to grow, that is probably the greatest tragedy, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's in a church or your school or your work, that when you're unhealthy and you're like, no, I'm not willing to grow, that's when things go I'd even tell you too, maybe you don't know, maybe you struggle to know how to grow and that's that's where I, we want to help supplement a lot of that. And you're right, because we kind of think, this is what I hear, it's kind of a lie that I think the enemy has told us so often, but I hear with people and parents and families and all that, and believers, is that, well, I'll stop now and I'll pick it up later. But your faith isn't static. Your faith is mm-hmm. dynamic. Mm-hmm. It will, it goes one way or the, I mean, not to use the old Southern Baptist, be like, he's backslidden. You know, I, <laughs> I, always, hear, I always tease Betty Bible drills that always mm-hmm. say, he's just backsliding right now. I don't know. I don't know if that's really what I'm trying to connote other than the idea that you, you don't just stop it here and pick it up later. By its very nature, your child doesn't, if they stop growing at eight, there's some major health problems, right, yes. and issues. And so for us as believers, I don't even know if we backslide as much as we're, we're going to go in a totally different direction over here than we would otherwise. And so, um, no, I and that's, you said something that, that stuck out to me and, oh, but even most of your viewers are uh, ladies, right? And, and choosing, and so you mentioned that. And I would tell you too, Growbox, personal grow box um, is a really great place to go. We actually have a vibrant box that's designed by and for pastors' wives. We don't make a lot of money off that. We just want to encourage them. But even for, so we're kind of broad on the denominational spectrum. Okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we, but we have churches that have uh, women that are in ministry, right? And serving on church staff. Yeah. That doesn't really change how we invest in them so if there's whether you're in that scenario or you know this is not an exclusively male thing i will be honest i did design a lot of it and so there are some diehard quotes in it and things like that so i'm sorry you're funny Uh, but as far as what it is um it applies yeah absolutely Uh, so that's just what you know thank you for ian thank you for being obedient to this new way that god has um directed you that he's using you in your ministry and I just want to encourage our listeners too that no matter where you're at, if you're, you know, back where Ian was several years ago, and and you're going through some really hard times, mm-hmm. that God will use that, and that was part of the plan. Maybe even even in His molding of your heart, of opening your eyes to new things. That because of that hard time that you're going through right now, that that might be the empathy and the sympathy that you begin to have the heart for someone else. That God's going to use you in that right. area. Absolutely. Um, they're right because people who who are not hurting typically Mm -hmm. do not grow like you don't look to change things when you're happy you know what i mean i was just going to ask how can um viewers like connect with you Mm -hmm. connect with your ministry read more about it because i know that this is a lot to cover in just a 35, 45 minute uh, talk. So how can they learn more about you? Uh, Well, you can learn by going to g6allies.com and you can do as as well as growboxteams.com. 
Um, and then you can also see, uh, and all of those sites, there's a place to see us. And so I'll shoot, I'll send some links for you if you want to include those. That would be great. Even our video, okay. uh, one of our testimonials that we're continually adding to, but, but that's going to be the best place to find us. And so it outlines our mission and, and a lot of what we're doing right now, we spent two years building the foundation to help fund what we're doing and that's starting to pick up and grow. That's but outside great. of that, our goal, you'll see the heart of what our ministry is, and that is to love and invest in pastors and their families, because they don't. Pastors' right. wives, uh, or, I mean, that's just has been my context a lot, but pastors' wives get so much of the brunt. Yeah, my they wife do. did so often. That's hard, yeah. Very few people that's love hard. them. And, and honestly, and so part of what we do, this is totally free for us, is that we have a network, but we also have, we have female um coaches and connections and uh, so male and female across the board whatever you're comfortable with but we also connect women in ministry or pastors wives or whatever it may be with others across the country awesome. so that, that is so great emerge, right? you, that, yeah you, can, you can't complain about your people, your people. you can't complain about your staff, <laughs> right. your staff. Right. right so you need a healthy place to vent right Ian, this has oh. been so great. Like, you have really enlightened us a lot. Like, thank you so much. So, and all those, all your information and contact will be in the notes. It will be in the notes. Yeah. And so, um, you know, as we're wrapping it up, as always, we have one question that we'll ask you, as we always do. Yes. Um, yes. How do you want to be remembered? Um, I love, I think, we had talked about this before at one point, but I think I've watched so much and i grew up i heard so many you know things from parents about parenting and most of them were negative or most of them were negative about me and i never had anybody tell me what i have now started telling everybody that doesn't have kids and that is when when you have a child you'll never love one human being as much as you love that human being and so when i think about what i want to be there's a lot of great pastors and uh brilliant thinkers that are remembered as very poor fathers and husbands and so i would rather be remembered as a great father and a great husband and someone who loved his family um, first and then someone who was faithful in his ministry second. That's, That's beautiful. beautiful. That is beautiful. <laughs> and and um, Elias, you're he- one day you will get to hear your father say that. So um, he is precious. So thank you, Ian. Thank you for being here. Um, listeners, I can't wait for you to hear this, to get some resources and some tools. Um, and hopefully it will really encourage you in your walk too. So whatever your journey is, um, as we always say, own it share it and let God use it. Y'all have a blessed day. Bye guys.